You are listening to the podcast of Richland Hills Baptist Church. We are located in Richland Hills, Texas. Our desire here is to believe, live, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you're listening to our podcast today, if you have any questions, you can find us on the web at richlandhillsbc.com. God bless you. If you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be walking through and looking at verses 10 through 18 this morning. So Hebrews chapter 2, again, I always encourage you to take notes. Uh, if you don't, bring a, a notebook or something like that. We have note pages, but I always encourage you to, to take notes and uh, so you can remember and think about what God is saying to us. Remember, a sermon is not meant just to be a nice thing to hear. God is speaking. If we believe that God is speaking through His Word, He has something to say to all of us, including myself. Just this past December, every December, as long as you can remember being a Southern Baptist, we collect what we call the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And so if you've been in church for any number of years, a Southern Baptist church, every year we take a collection called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. This offering we did this year, our goal was $8,000. We're just a a few hundred short of that goal from my last uh, counting I saw. But that money, it goes to missionaries all over the world. Or international missionaries, and that money, 100%, what I love about that, all that money goes to support mission endeavors. Because it costs money. And so, why though, why is it called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering? And so, many of you who have been Baptist for a while, you know the story of Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon was, again, she was a missionary. In the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, she was a, a female missionary in China. And what was unique about Lottie, and she was very little, but what was very unique about her is that she went there and she adopted the customs, the culture, obviously not the religion, but the culture, the dress of the Chinese people, the language. She became like them in order to reach them. She adopted their way of doing things so that she could identify with them. I believe through that process she would have been able to understand their struggles and difficulties. In fact, even when famine came, she she would give up her food. I've read that at some point she dropped down to 50 pounds. But she identified with the Chinese people. She she wanted desperately for them to know the message of Christ, to know the gospel, so she became like them in order that they may come to Christ. And in fact, there were people that came to Christ. And it reminded me so much that a lot of moon, of course, is, is human like us, and she sinful like us, all people, right? She's not perfect. She's, she was not perfect. We don't believe in sainthood in the Baptist church. 
But her life, though, I, I saw something in her life. I, I saw a little glimpse of the way that she identified with the people that she was serving that reminded me so much of what Jesus Christ did for us. How Jesus Christ came it, like us in order to save us. Christ became like us to save us. And that thought, that's, a, that's this big idea, this main idea that I want you to consider this morning. Christ became like us to save us. And as we walk through this text, we're going to see different areas, how Christ became like us and how he came to save us. And I want you to make note of those. But let us read Hebrews chapter 2, 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, may you bless your word this morning. May something be said, Lord, that is of you and would help us in this walk of life. In Jesus' name, amen. He became like us to save us. Last week we began to look at the humanity of Jesus. We began to look at that beautiful doctrine that Jesus is fully God and fully man. You might say, well, pastor, I don't understand how that can be. It is a mystery of God. But he's 100% God, 100% man. Fully God, fully man. And the humanity of Jesus speaks to how he became like us. You and I, we're, we're human beings. And Jesus came, became like us for a purpose, in order to save us. Now we're going to walk through this text together. And I hope that you, again, maybe you have a Bible if, or a pen that you take notes with in your Bible. Because there's a lot here. I want us to kind of stop at some points. There's some deep stuff. And I want us to look at a few of these things that the author Hebrews is going to say. 
Now, verse 10, I want you to make note. It's, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, here is speaking of God the Father. This is God the Father. Remember, creation comes through the Trinitarian God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus Christ also was a part of creating and making and forming. The Hebrews tells us that. But here he's saying, listen, it's fitting that he, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, so the, the goal of the Father is that there would be bringing many sons, many children into glory. And bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So this is the desire of the Father to bring many sons to glory in that He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the founder of who is the founder of our salvation. So, this is a big idea I want you to think about for just a moment. God, God is the founder of our salvation through His Son, Jesus. Jesus is the founder. Remember, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Salvation comes from God. It doesn't matter where you are theologically, but here's the truth of the Bible. Salvation comes from God. It doesn't come from you or I. We don't just, we don't just choose and decide randomly that we want to be Christians. God works in our hearts. He draws us to himself. Now, there are theological implications and questions with that, but that's really the truth of the matter. God does that work in us. We need him. And Jesus, think about it, if Jesus never came, if God never sent his son Jesus, would any of us be Christians? Of course not. So it has to be of God. Salvation is in the mind of God. But he, the founder of salvation, you should make the founder of salvation perfect through suffering. That's Jesus. You might say, wait a second. Preacher, what does that mean that God the Father made Jesus perfect through suffering? I want you to underline that, that phrase there. I've always been taught Jesus was perfect. How did he get made perfect through suffering? Ah, yes. Jesus is morally perfect, and he was perfect his whole life. But this phrase perfection here, this word is not pointing to his moral perfection. It's pointing to that in the cross, Jesus completed all that God had given him to do. Through his suffering and his death and his resurrection, Jesus completed the redemptive work. So when it says that he was made perfect, it means that his redemptive work was finished. Jesus had done all that he had come to do. His life was finished. And so that's what it means when it says that he was made perfect. It means that through suffering, Jesus finished the work of God. And so what that means is that the cross had to happen. 
There was no other way. There was no plan B that until Jesus went to the cross, his work was not finished. And so we speak of the cross being cruel and horrible and terrible, and it is. But it was necessary. It was necessary, and we're going to see in just a moment how that is necessary. Then he goes on, he says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. To sanctified is to be made holy, to be set apart. Jesus is the one who sets us apart and brings us into holiness. We are the ones who are made holy. They have one source. What does that mean, that we and Jesus have one source? This is a question, there's a lot that goes into it. Some people say, well, our one source is God. God is our master. We follow Him. But I believe here that the author of Hebrews is actually pointing to the humanity of Jesus. We'll see that. And to our humanity. So in that sense... Jesus, because of his mother Mary, he also comes from the line of Adam. We too come from the line of Adam. We have this same human source. Obviously, Jesus is fully God, but remember, he's fully man. And so this passage here is going to identify the humanity of Jesus. The writer's going to use three different Old Testament quotes. I'll give you the references. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of my congregation, I will sing your praise. That's Psalm 22, verse 22. If you remember Psalm 22, the beginning of Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I believe Psalm 22 points to the the messianic role of Jesus. But here it's speaking again. All three of these are going to show the, the family relationship that Jesus has with us. I will tell of your name to my brothers. So in that sense, guess what? Jesus is our brother. We are brothers to Jesus. Why? Because remember, we come from that human line. He is our brother. And then we see where it says, I will put my trust in him. That's Isaiah 8, 17. Like an older brother, I read one commentator, like an older brother, we can see how Jesus trusts God. And then behold, I and the children God has given me. And that's Isaiah 8, 18. All of those taken together point to, again, our co-humanity with Jesus. We are his brother. We are part of his family. And so you might be sitting there thinking, okay, Pastor, I get what you're saying, and you said a few things, but why is this significant? Because, in fact, it might be so significant, I mean, I think this is incredibly significant, but the truth is, there may be some of you that never really heard sermons or thought about the idea of Jesus being man. 
Like, why is this so important? The author's going to tell us. In fact, I mean, this is of, of just mega importance. He's saying, listen, you've you got to know that, that Jesus, he shares our humanity. And there's going to be huge theological implications. But then there's going to also be huge practical implications. He says, and this matters for the way that we think about it, for our theology, but it also matters just as much for how we live this life. Like this Hebrews is not just meant to make us theologically smarter. He's saying, listen, I want you to be able to live this life well. He says, since therefore, verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, again, we have that flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus shares flesh and blood. He, in this life, he went through the same things that we walk through. In fact, I believe that Jesus, as he was learning to walk as a, as a baby, guess what? He probably fell and skinned his knees. Jesus bled like us. He probably stubbed his toe. He didn't say what we say, I'm sure, because he's sinless. Jesus probably had a cold. He got sick. When he was on the Nazareth basketball team, he didn't make all the free throws. You might say, well, no, Pastor, he's perfect. I mean, he's perfect. I, no, he, no, listen, Jesus is morally perfect. But he was human. You see, if you take away that humanity... In fact, there's a, there's a Christmas carol that, I love it, but you know the line where it says, no crying he makes? Jesus cried when he was a baby. Because, how do you know? Because all babies cry. He cried. And you say, well, why is that a big deal? Because if we take away the humanity of Jesus and say, no, he didn't cry, or he didn't skin his knee, or he didn't bump his elbow on the doorpost then you're taking away his true humanity. No, he was sinless. He never sinned. He was morally perfect. But he also had the same limitations that you or I have. Think about it. He was still, he had to submit to gravity, didn't he? I mean, the, again, he made the universe with gravity, but guess what? Jesus was a part of that. Now, there were times, there were the miraculous, where he walks upon the water and he does the miraculous, but in his common life, guess what? Jesus would have been just like you and I, but yet he could do the miraculous. But there was times where Jesus would have been just like us. Struggled. But never sinned. And this is important. He's going to say, listen, and he's going to tell us in just a moment why this is so important. But he partook of the same things 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus came to be like us in order to save us. He became like us. He took our same, our same human body, our same struggles, our same difficulties. And he was going to give his life that through death he would destroy the one. Who is the one who has the power of death? It says it is the devil. I want to stop there. What does it mean that the devil has the power of death? Because you might say, well, Pastor, I always thought that, that God, God knows our life. God really is in charge of our life and death. And that's true. But when it speaks about the, the devil having the power of death, it goes back to, I believe, the garden. Where Adam and Eve, when they sinned, when they ate the fruit that God had told them not to, it was there through the deception of the devil. There through the deception of the evil one, the wicked one. That through his deception, death entered into the world. And so, a part of the enemy's, the devil's purpose today, do you know what he does today? He's still trying to deceive you and me so that we would live in this body of death and we would die eternity for eternity. He's still at the same thing. He's still deceiving. He's still lying. He still wants us to die. Yes, we all physically die, but he wants us to be separated from God for eternity. So in that sense, he has the power of death. And so Jesus came so that he might destroy the devil. You might say, well, wait, if Jesus destroyed the devil on the cross, and he did, that's doctrine, that Jesus on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus defeated the schemes of the devil. You say, well, wait, if that's the case, then why is there evil in this world still? If Jesus defeated the devil, then why is there still so much wickedness? Why does it seem like he's still doing certain things? Well, it reminds me a little bit of the Civil War. Robert E. Lee surrendered to Grant in Appomattox in April 1865. It was there that, and I've been to Appomattox. I know that country well, driven through it many, many times. And you can kind of picture it and envision. Lee, he surrenders, and officially, the Civil War is over. But there's still people fighting, weren't there? They don't get the word right away. It's not immediate in this sense. And so they say that actually the, the last battle of Palmito Ranch was actually here in Texas of May 1865. Do you know who won the battle of Palmito Ranch? The Confederates. Did it matter? No. 
They won that battle, but guess what? They had, they had lost the war because of that surrender. Now, obviously, the devil didn't surrender. But in the same way that, yes, they were still fighting after the war. There were still skirmishes. But the battle was over. The, the big battle. In the same way, in this life, Satan is a defeated enemy. I mean, it's over. The war is finished and done, but yet he's still fighting, still trying to last gasp, trying to pull people with him as he goes down into the flames of hell. He's done. He knows it. But who can he bring with him? Who can he destroy? And so in that sense, there will come a day when that's when Jesus Christ returns. That all of this will be completed and done. But the whole goal is that he would deliver, it says in verse 15, deliver all those who the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He wants to deliver us from the power and fear of death. Death is that one common, well, death and taxes, they say, but that one common denominator that we all experience. Every single one of us has been touched by death in some way. Every single one of us will face death one day. There's no escaping it. Can't really even put it off. It's not up to us. And death, when you really think about it, just from a human perspective, take away our faith for just a moment, but think about from just a human perspective. Death is that great enemy that we should fear from a human perspective. Because in death, this human life is over. In death, every single one of us will face the judgment of God. Now, thanks be to Christ, we don't have to fear death. But, but really, I mean, death is a serious thing. And oftentimes in this life, and, and just as I was reading different things, I agree with this, that we live our life trying to kind of put out of our minds death. We try not to think about death. We try not to think about what will happen. And, but it's real. Every single one of us will die. You know, I've talked to a lot of funeral directors. And they'll tell you how in modern culture, even the way that we do funerals has changed. Nowadays, people are just ready to, to get it over with. They just want to, to get their loved one buried and be done with it so they don't have to think about death anymore. It hadn't always been that way. And many of you remember how in previous times that there would be a time of, of mourning. It might be a week or longer. You didn't just rush and get it done. People might come by the house. or uh, 
again, I didn't necessarily experience that, but many of you did experience the way that we mourn differently back then. One of the funeral directors told me that he didn't say exactly like this, but essentially, we don't have time for death anymore. Death's inconvenient to our schedule. And so we just got to get it over with. We got to get it done. And we don't have time to deal with it. But it's a reality that every one of us will be faced with. In, in Jesus, we can be delivered from that fear and that slavery. You see, we are slaves to it. And the reason we're slaves to it is because we live our lives essentially trying to avoid it. Where that fear of death will drive us to all sorts of different places. Yeah, we can live in freedom. He's saying, listen, through Jesus, through what he's done, through his humanity, he's come to deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For it's not the angels that he helps, but the offspring of Abraham. Again, salvation is for humans. He came for us. But now I want you to look at verse 17 through 18. It is, it is beautiful and so much amazing theological truth. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. In every respect, remember, he had to be like us. He had to be human. He had to walk through those things that you and I walk through. The bumps and bruises. The struggles, the temptations. Because if he didn't walk through those things, then he wouldn't have been made like us. He had to be made like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now, we're not going to go all into the high priesthood this morning because he's, gonna, he's going to really take that and run with it later in Hebrews. But the idea of a high priest in the, or a priest even in the Old Testament was that they really, they mediate between God and people. So a priest was a human. They would offer sacrifices and then you'd have a high priest each year that would go into the holy place. That, again, that on behalf of all of humanity. But the problem, though, with the high priest of the Old Testament is that they themselves were sinful. They themselves messed up. But Jesus would be a merciful and faithful high priest. And what would he do? He would make propitiation for the sins of the people. The high priest of old, all they could do was offer the, the blood of animals. But then what would happen is every year they'd have to redo it and do this over and over. But Jesus Christ would make propitiation. What in the world? Underline that word, propitiation. What does that mean? What does that word mean? That word propitiation, it goes to this idea of appeasing the wrath of God. 
You see, you and I, in our sin, we, are, we, have, we have sinned and we deserve God's judgment, God's wrath. And part of our punishment is the wages of sin is death. That is essentially God's wrath being poured on us because of our disobedience, because of our lives. And so hell and separation from God is a part of that punishment. But what Jesus has done, he was a propitiation, meaning that he stepped in our place. He absorbed the wrath of God for us. He took the punishment. He was our atonement, if you will, our substitution. So Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. He, he took it. Not because he deserved the wrath of God, but Jesus Christ, out of his great love for us, he did so. And the only reason that that was acceptable to God was that Jesus also bore that human flesh. He had human blood running through his veins. He was a child of Abraham, child of Adam. He could take the punishment for us because he's our brother. And so Jesus, he absorbed the wrath of God. He is our propitiation for the sins of the people. Like this is, this is the message of Christianity. This is, this is everything. I, I, just think about that. Jesus Christ and his great love for us, he came, lived a human life for you, for me, knowing full well all the things that you would do, knowing full well all the evil and wicked things that people would come up with, knowing full well all the thoughts that you would think and the inclinations of your heart, and all that, Jesus Christ came and he gave his life, he bore your sin in his flesh. Like This is what we believe. Like, this is the hope of the gospel. This is it. He did that. And my question is that, do we think about that? Do you think about that amazing love, that there's been no other love like that? And if we say we believe it, if we say we think about it, then ought not our lives reflect that? Ought not our lives be lived as living worship to this Jesus who loved us? Ought not our lives be spent sharing with other people, listen, yes, you mess up, yes, you sin, but thanks be to God, Jesus Christ loves you and cares for you. Shouldn't our lives be spent trying to rescue other people out of the, the grasp and death of, of hell? You see, if we really believe this, ought not our lives be spent for the Lord Jesus Christ? He died for you and for me. Like when we say we become Christians, that's what we mean. We mean that, yes, I understand that Jesus is my sacrifice. Jesus is my Propitiation. Have you trusted in Christ? 
And if you have, praise God. But are you living your life for Jesus? Are you spending your life for Jesus? Are you following Jesus? And none of us can say yes perfectly. But are you on that road? Do you, do you desire it? Do you even care about that? I mean, how awful would it be to say we love what Jesus has done and we sing praises and all that, but we don't, we don't have any desire to live like him. We just say, well, you know, that's just how things are. It's how I am and that's how I'll always be. Like that's kind of sick and twisted if you think about it. That we're okay with Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, but we're not okay changing our life when we realize what he's done for us. Like we want the forgiveness, but we don't want all that comes with the response of our lives. So what that means is when we really understand this, then it means that we ought to on the table and say, Jesus, I want you to take everything in my life, every thought and attitude, and if there's something that doesn't belong, I want you to take it out. And I, Lord, I want you to help me to take everything out. I want to lay everything on the table because I understand your great sacrifice. And because I understand your great sacrifice, there's nothing that compares to knowing Jesus. So you say, Jesus, these thoughts that I have that aren't right, they're, they're gone. Maybe the, the things that I do in the dark when nobody sees and nobody knows, and maybe it's just the things that only I know, Jesus, they're not, they're not of you. Or maybe it's the way that I speak about other people or talk or the attitudes in my heart. Jesus, you died for those things. Or maybe it's the gossip and the, again, the way that I tear down other people and destroy other people in conversations. Jesus, you, you died for that. Or maybe it's some other sort of sin in our life. There's all sorts of things that people fall into. Jesus, it doesn't belong. You see, if we really believe it, if we really believe that Jesus lived and died, then our lives ought to be His and His alone. Jesus came like us, become, came like us to save us. But he didn't save us in order for us to stay the same way we were. You hear that? He didn't save us so that we would stay the same way. He saved us so that we would have life in him, but so that we would live a life of holiness and obedience. That's the life he's called us to. You might say, well, you know, that's really hard. I mean, that, that's really tough, Pastor. You, you just don't know the temptation out in the world, and I do. 
Pastor, there's just so much temptation, and I'm tempted by, by the things that I see or hear or the people around me, and you just, Pastor, there's just a lot of temptation. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, part of that gospel hope and message that we have is that Jesus Christ, because and identifies with us through humanity, he knows temptation. And maybe the temptations aren't exactly the same, but really when you break down temptations, they're really all going to come from the same types of source. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You've seen that broken down in the Bible. So Jesus has been tempted. He, he understood these things. And he's able to help us. But are you going to Jesus for help? Or are we trying to do it on our own? Which we'll never achieve. But remember, he became like us to save us. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, I thank you for the, that gospel message. That Jesus, in giving his life, he, he took our punishment, he took our sin, he absorbed your wrath. Father, I pray that we would love Jesus. And I pray, God, that we would be willing to lay down things in our life that don't belong. So, Father, if there's someone here this morning that's trusted in Jesus, they're, they're Christians, I just pray right now, God, that we would just kneel in our hearts at the altar. And we would just say, Jesus, take, take my life. Take all these things. And, and Lord, may you... Lord, if there's something that doesn't belong, may, Lord, may you work in my life. Lord, we all have things, and I, Lord, you, Lord knows you know my heart. You know the things in my life. And so, God, I, I pray that every one of us, myself included, we would take an inventory of our life. Lord, that we would look at every part. But Lord, you are gracious. And Lord, that when we lay these things down, Lord, that you don't keep recounting them to us. Lord, as far as the east is from the west, Lord, you forgive us fully and completely. And so Lord, we don't have to morbidly go back and keep beating ourselves up for the things that we've done. Father, we can live in full, complete forgiveness, but we must come. Lord, I know we must come to lay them down. So may today be a day where we lay down these things that we're holding on to. Lord, someone might be scared. Maybe they're scared to make these changes in their life. 
Lord, maybe they're sitting here thinking, well, you know, if I start changing, the people around me may not, may not like me anymore, may not love me. Maybe there's some people in your life, in their lives, Lord, that aren't Christians. God, I pray that you would give boldness and courage. And for those that are fearful of what that means to truly follow Jesus, may you show them. Maybe there's some that have struggled with things for their whole lives or a long time and they don't even know how to begin. We know that every beginning comes in you. So may you show us today, God. May we leave today desiring to be like your son, our brother. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for who we are. And if there's someone, if there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus, they've never begun this journey, may they begin today. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.